Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Yeah, good morning to you, Nelson. I'm going to start with a, a very interesting uh, piece of our discussion yesterday with Rabbi Yoshua Fast, the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. He said to me on the air, he said to me on the air that he was traveling last week in the United States with members of the Israeli government who either had never been to the USA or had been here only once, uh, either long ago or an isolated trip, you know, many years ago, etc. And the impression that they got in this country, the takeaway that they left the United States with was how comfortable the American Jewish community is here in the United States. And they were not talking about the wealth and the luxury that we enjoy. They were talking about the simple uh, idea of comfort uh, and how we feel living here in the United States. Now, again, for those who've been, you know, 99% of their lives in Israel, they're expecting, because you know, they grew up with this impression, that Jews in the diaspora, you know, can't exactly sleep well at night. You never know what may happen. Uh, it, it, can't, it can't possibly be as comfortable for Jews outside of Israel as in Israel. And I wanted to get your reaction to this, because frankly, Malcolm, you and I both know that with everything going on, including continued public speeches at graduations and colleges that laud the uh, Palestinian cause and condemn Zionism and make outrageous statements about the Jewish community, etc., despite all of that, there's a great degree of comfort, some might say unprecedented in Jewish history comfort for the American Jewish community in this country your reaction to this well it's true to and and america offers a lot to the jews but anybody who doesn't see the signs and the troubling signs uh in so many realms and the shifting demographics of america the shifting political situation in america and the the uh Comparison to Israel is a, is a false one. It, Israel offers a Jew the fullest life as a Jew, which cannot be compared to anything in the diaspora. So it's not because Jews are uncomfortable here that they should be going and they should be seeing the connection to Israel, but because of the elevated status and, and the importance of Aliyah is not just, it should be, you should be going there for positive and and, and images on the other hand we see many troubling signs and, and the the increase in the anti-semitic incidents and i know there's some reports that say it's down a little bit down this down that that's not consistent and the the growth of on the internet and on the campuses which we know affects then how future generations feel so you have activist groups are the ones that are most hostile to israel and the bulk who are indifferent and will not stand up for it so we we have to look at the at the reality of our situation wherever we are and wherever we have been and that those who have the foresight usually fared better but isn't it interesting how the i, I let's call it average 
you know, um, educated Israeli, I'd have to assume that these people were in that category, that they would suspect that the default would be that those who live outside of Israel can't possibly be at a 100 percent place of comfort. Right. They would expect that it's got to be just based on Jewish history and based on how they grew up, knowing that, you know, things are so much safer and better for Jews in Israel than outside of Israel. Uh, They figured they, they have to feel the trepidation here. And of course, they felt exactly the opposite. They were shocked at just how comfortable everybody is in this country. And by the way, you're somebody, I mean, there are many people out there, but certainly you're uh, chief among them who spends, you know, half their time doing everything to defend and promote the state of Israel. At the same time, you know, you do not neglect and you think it's important, understandably so, to secure the community's place here in this country, right? Meeting with local officials and certainly federal officials, etc., and having good relationships with all of them. But I think we need more of that 50-50. I think there's so many people and leaders in our community who are so focused on doing everything possible to make life as good as possible here and forging those relationships to benefit the Jewish community here, and they don't spend any time, any of the other 50%, worried about and doing everything in their power uh, to, uh, to strengthen the state of Israel. So I think that's an important piece to remember as well. Look, I, I don't think it's, we're dealing with zero-sum games here. We're, we're dealing with uh, people who have to address security needs the financial needs the food needs the from everybody from the elderly to the youngest to make sure that uh, we get our fair share in terms of educational support so our institutions can survive our schools our yeshivas uh, all of the needs of our community are met but that doesn't detract and shouldn't detract from our ability to focus also on not only Israel, but the international community. I mean, what we did for Soviet Jewry, for Syrian Jews, for, for Iranian Jews, Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews, what we do today for Jewish communities in South America and others that we are concerned about um, should not detract from our ability. And we have the capability to do both, to be able to stand up and fight for Israel. And frankly, when you see the condition of Jews in some of these countries where they were very comfortable and all of a sudden the situations are shifting, reminds you of the importance of Israel and reminds you why the balance really is not two separate tracks. And when we have a crisis, we have responsibility to the Jews and to, to our own communities and to Israel, as well as endangered Jewish communities around the world. We have the kayak to do, we have the ability to do it. The problem is that there are just too few of us who are really engaged. You know, somebody said to me that once a fundraiser said, you know what, I know I have enough money for my institution. The problem is it's, it's still in their pockets. And that's that's the problem. We have the ability, we have the power to do it. The problem is it's still sitting in people's, you know, as in their living room, not in the kitchen, wherever they're comfortable, their office, the boardroom, without them realizing how how tenuous the situation could be. Oh, how right you are. I was at a shiva call this week, by the way, and somebody was talking about their parents, one um, whose family was from... Uh Holland, right around 1939, they left on one of the last uh, ships, and uh, one whose family was from, and the other side of the family was from Krakow, survivors, etc. And they said that both parents had written their memoirs, and my gosh, it's so rich with, you know, Jewish history from Ma'afela Laora, you know, in both cases, and, you know, who who are we in our generation? There's nothing to write about. You know, we we never went through any of these trials and tribulations, and my reaction was... (laughs) 
I don't know how you would have reacted. My reaction was, just wait. Just wait. If we know Jewish history, everybody at some time is going to have to overcome adversity both individually and as a community in order to survive as Jews. Now, I know you think I'm being dramatic, and I get it. There's a lot of drama there. But people are losing focus that everything we've seen in our history does get repeated, and we've got to do everything in our power to make sure to you know to, that, that we're prepared for situations like that. I don't think our community here in the United States is prepared at all for it. And by the way, perfect segue. You have and, and look again. You know you're a leader who speaks up, but you have to be disappointed in Jewish leadership. That again, as these speeches are being made from graduations and people are are giving their pro-Palestinian rhetoric and condemning Zionism and hating Israelis publicly, it has to trouble you that you're not joined by more Jewish leaders who are emphatically out- outraged, publicly outraged by what they're hearing in forum like that. Well, I think that, uh, you know, there are instances where I know uh, people, and I've made that choice too at times, when we deal with very delicate situations, where you have to balance how, what the response is, what's the most effective response to build the best, uh, to, to assure that you get accountability and that you address it. the situation community demands that people speak out. This is federal, uh, I mean, state taxes, city taxes are paying for these people and for the situation when the, the, the dean applauds the speech, when the person was elected by the classmates. Now, just think of what what was going on in the two, three years, whatever they were in law school there, the kind of rhetoric, the kind of hatred that was that was being spewed, that her classmates would would elect her to be the spokesperson and roundly applaud and, and support the lies, distortions, and misrepresentations that we that we heard there. Yeah. Now, the 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 truth is that people have to be aware of the circumstances, and sometimes it's easier. So we point out what's going on in Europe because people are able to focus. Maybe distance gives them clarity. But the fact is that what happens there is happening here. Just sometimes it comes a little later. But now with the internet, with the the different communication system. <laughs> It's you cannot separate it, and the hatred crosses borders, boundaries, oceans. There's hard to make a distinction. Of course, each country is sui generis and, and it's unique. I do think that the president coming out with a uh, and addressing and having the White House create this plan, even though it, it has flaws and and there are prob- it's problematic in some regards. But the fact is that, that that putting it on the national agenda and demanding that every agency begin to address it because most of them think that they're exempt from it when in fact there is a relevance of every single agency. You know, somebody asked me, well, what does agriculture got to do with it? And the answer is kosher food in the programs. There are a lot of programs that don't offer kosher food to people who are entitled to SNAP and other benefits. The the Bureau of Prisons, we have many problems in, in the prisons of anti-Semitism, you know, denying kosher food or whatever uh, issues arise. So every agency and if they're really held to account, but that means they have to be held to account. And if there are, and they have to file reports supposedly by the fall. Um, so I think that, that you know, while, while the focus has been on some of the criticism and the, um, you know, I, I saw the CARE, the Committee on Islamic American Relations. And to me, the significance of their statement was what they welcome and what they and how they interpret it tells us the weakness and where we have to strengthen and especially on the, the the commitment to the IRA definition, which they 
it is the plan embraces doesn't endorse so they grab on that and say you see it doesn't endorse it it does mention the nexus definition which is not good and it doesn't bar bds and it doesn't bar this and doesn't bar that so you know it's a guide to me about what the failures are but but when if the federal government really does it and we get the fbi and the dhs to really and and they do cooperate and they have been helpful and they're helping us with the assembling statistics and responding to anti-Semitic incidents. But the fact is that much more should be done. And we saw it in the report that was filed where major cities left out of the report where the number of anti-Semitic incidents were, were the highest. And uh, so we have, we have to be on our toes, be watching everything, be prepared to speak out when, when it's appropriate, to be able to, to work behind the scenes when it's appropriate, but to keep in mind all the time what our longer term obligation, it's not just that second, but we have to look at this long term and the trends certainly should be of concern to anybody who sees them. No question about it. Well said. By the way, on the topic of anti-Semitism, do you think that the Tree of Life case could actually end with a death penalty or that's a real long shot? You know, the the fact that they didn't call any witnesses, they didn't put him on the stand that, uh, I mean, they obviously know what the outcome is and maybe you know, there's some sort of uh, a hope there on their part uh, to avoid uh, the death penalty. Um, I think it's it's a long shot in any place in the United States today to get a, a death penalty. But uh, certainly, I think he'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, that's for sure. But, it, you know, there has to be a message. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the message of the punishment, because too often, look at the deals that have been reached with some of those who carried out the attacks, they get a slap on the wrist, they get, you know, 18 days, three months, you know, minimal sentences, which is probably on the part of some of the prosecutors, not what they wanted, but because that's probably what they could get through a a process that either a jury or a judge would not give as strong a sentence as they would want, so they take what they can get. But we have to send that message that is not gonna be tolerated. Uh, the United States has offered sanction relief to Iran in the latest proposal in terms of a deal um, in exchange, I guess, for a limited Iranian progress in their nuclear program. Would that be the nature of this deal? So th- this is not a JP CPOA junior deal. This is far less than less for less, which, as you know, I talked about for a long time that this thing was in the offing, that there was, that there were talks going on, and what, what they released so far, two point seven billion dollars from Iraq this week. Suppose, yeah, this past week, that that money was already released. It's, it's part of the money being held by the Iraqi government, the Iranian money, but it was to pay for past oil and gas shipment. The United States said, and what I was told directly when I expressed my deep concern to American officials that this was in the, uh, about to happen. And yet there's there's much more. They have a, over $7 billion of of the Iranian money in Iraq. They're about, there's about $20 billion that they're trying to get released, the money from South Korea, money from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And again, it seems to me a, a mistake because you know releasing this money fuels the terrorism. It doesn't go to benefit the people. It's it is uh, we're getting very little because they're saying they can enrich to 60 percent. If you remember, JCPOA was 3.5 percent. 
And 60% is just a, a step away from 90%, which is weapons grade. We know they've enriched to 83%. And if for people whom these the statistics seem boring, believe me, you better understand them because they're very critical for us to understand what the nature of the deal is. And, you know, they're going to call it an informal deal because they don't want it to have to go to the Senate for approval. Well, how you long know? does it take to get from 83 to 90? Is that days uh, or months? Days. So why? So what? The, but the point is that they're not dismantling any of the centrifuges which enrich uranium. They're, they're just saying we're going to freeze it right now, this part of the program. In the meantime, they're working on the other two parts of a nuclear program. One is weaponization, which means affixing a bomb to to uh, a delivery system and the delivery system. So they announce that they have a hypersonic missile which you know would fly, I think, four times the speed of sound and would be able to go globally and attack the United States, attack others. Israel, uh, I think, downplayed uh, this on two grounds. Uh, one, that they it hasn't been proven to be operational yet. Nobody's seen it actually in flight, uh, although it seems many of the experts accept the fact that they have developed this capacity, even though they have not finalized it and it does not appear to be operational. Yet, but and Israel has developed and is and or is developing, we should say, an anti-hypersonic missile that the Israel aircraft industries started three years ago already uh, uh, working on it. And the the, uh, the so the Iranians will work on the other aspects of it. In the meantime, what is the message that we're sending? Iran is taking over Iraq consistently, covertly with its its. Um, uh, operational groups there, the the front groups that they've created, and it becomes another leg of the from stretching from Yemen, the Houthis in Yemen, to Gaza, to the Hezbollah and Hamas in in Lebanon, to their groups in Syria, their their militia in Syria, to their um, uh, actions in in Iraq. So, you know, we send a message which then leads to the consequences that the UAE pulls out of our of the naval coalition that they were part of, because when when ships came under attack, the United States didn't respond, the West didn't respond. They did later to to subsequent effort uh, attempts by Iran to seize uh, ships in the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, and again, don't take don't glaze over, man. This is people better listen and read the what what is really happening on the ground because it's very limited coverage in the media. But these are the things that can have transformative impacts. And what I think it's a mistake to make any deal with Iran. The They're saying that this is just all this money is being paid directly to companies for things that were provided. But A, it's the symbolism, the message that it sends to, to the rest of the world. That, and what is the message we send to the Iraqis and others if we make a deal with, the, uh, with them, uh, with Iran? Uh, and they're saying, well, they won't go beyond 60%. And they won't attack American contractors in Syria and Iraq, it directly and most of all by its uh, proxies, and that they would contribute, they would uh, cooperate more with the, the nuclear inspectors. Well, those who've been listening, I've been telling you all along how they have not cooperated, and also they're supposed to not sell ballistic missiles to Russia, and and they want unfreeze more and more billions of dollars, which we know is the is the fuel of terrorism. So I'm. I think it's very disturbing development, even if it's in a limited context. Uh, Israel continues to target the weapons depots, which means Iran is still sending in weapons to their militia in in Syria, certainly to Lebanon. 
And, you know, this is all intertwined. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. But all of this is based on a premise that it seems everybody wants to ignore, and that is that that we're essentially at the point, and I think you're ready to agree, we're at the point where there is going to be a nuclear Iran, and they will be weaponized. Like it's it's sort of like every, and, and that's why I don't understand the whole set, the whole you know lifting of sanctions at this point. We're talking about a lot of money, as you just described, money that's being used for terror purposes, essentially, and it's being freed up. And and the reality is that we're just whatever it is, days, weeks, months away from Iran, and now the Western world, as Israel has been warning everybody has to adjust and deal with this fact that they're going to be you know nuclearized and figure out what to do now going forward isn't it time to just come to that reality that realization well we may be moving towards that end and crossed quite a few red lines uh, as you saw that israel laid down the significance of the deal saying it was a small deal that we can handle. Well, I think that there's domestic politics involved in that too, that the people, you know, nobody wants, no government wants to be blamed and, and be criticized for the fact that under their watch, the, the deal that they were trying to prevent didn't, it did move forward, even if it's in a, a very limited context and it's not the size of the JCPOA and it's not a resumption of the JCPOA, but it is a JCPOA junior or less than that it doesn't matter it's to me that's why i keep saying about what what people understand the messages and we know that they lie there's a a a tradition called takia which is um, where you're allowed to lie in islam to serve a national purpose or to move ahead and he speaks openly he, he talked about the three key words honor wisdom and expediency but the, the this doctrine of dissimulation is a very much part of that expediency. And he uses this to describe why they accepted the 2015 JCPOA deal, why they're able to expect these deals, and what underlies the policy, which is to lie to the West. So they can say, you know, we're gonna allow more inspectors. Did they allow it? Well, under all the deals they were required to, and they did not, they still have hidden facilities, which we don't uh, have uh, access to. Uh, they continue they just provide weapons to Russia in in the in the Ukraine. None of this though, and the violations of human rights at home, you know, executions that we, we believe that already they've executed 300 people this year and last month was the biggest month of all. What happened to the human rights agenda? What happens to all of the other things that were supposedly, you know, be considerations and how we deal with uh, with, with Iran while it escalates its attacks mm -hmm. in Syria and elsewhere uh, and and continues its nefarious activities, especially in South America, which we seem to disregard completely. Oh, yeah. And and the growing naval power, which is usually a precursor to what they do in other realms. If so you got to look at the total picture to understand what the significance of each part is. But just remember, nothing is being dismantled. So everything is in place, which means that they can activate it overnight. 
Would anything be different if Russia and Ukraine were not at war with each other? Uh, Russia is so dependent, it seems now, on whatever Iran's you know able to get to them, whether it's drones or anything else, uh, that maybe if they weren't at war, they they would not be as uh, it would not be as much to Iran's advantage. Maybe even Russia might. I, mean, I don't know what they've done in the past, but might put you know help put pressure on Iran in terms of their uh, nuclear advancement. Would it be any different this situation if Russia was not at war? I do believe the situation would be different if we did not have the war. For one thing, our resources wouldn't be as taxed that we don't have, you know, we don't replace the stockpiles, for instance, that we had in Israel, uh, the pre-positioning of equipment that we had in South Korea, that the um, the strains in terms of military budgets, et cetera, are, are, uh, are greater than um, would otherwise be the case. I think it also elevated Iran's ability because of its sales to Russia of munitions, ammunition and others, drones, and uh, and now also negotiating about selling ballistic missiles, which supposedly this deal will, will stop. But we know that they'll sell it to them clandestinely, that, that they violate every deal that they sign anyway. But they also are selling the oil for Russia that is supposed to be sanctioned. So they have They've benefited. They've gotten income at a time when when their people are standing up against them. There have been amazing demonstrations that I've reported on repeatedly about the internal manifestations that that just because you don't read about the demonstrations doesn't mean that they aren't going on and that the people don't feel the same way that they did. They clamp down uh, more on them. Uh, And Israel has to then respond by developing like the naval Iron Dome system and all the other capacities that it has to devote to, um, to, to countering the potential threats from uh, all around it, and, and it's, well, most of which are tied, to, um, are tied to, to Iran. And then we look at the, these uh, new coalitions that Iran, together with India, Pakistan, the Gulf states, creates its own naval alliance that they say will patrol the northern Gulf. These are all things with long-term consequences. And, and you can list them for the next half hour, all of the developments that are taking place in, in any one time. So the Gulf, the, the war in the Ukraine certainly is a component. It does put additional strains on the system. It certainly uh, get, puts Iran in a position and uh, locked it in more with Russia and China over the last uh, over the last few years. And then you see that them being invited to the Shanghai Cooperation Council, become an associate at the BRICS. Uh, all of these things put Iran in a very different uh, position. What do we know about this U.S. helicopter episode in Syria? You know, there was an incident. I mean, we don't, we don't know that we get the full reports on it, but it could be just, uh, it doesn't mean that it was hostile fire. It could have been an accident. Could have been an accident, exactly. Um, and Israeli politics, Lapid, Lapid testified against Bibi this week. Yes, and I'm asking it in that tone. I don't know if you agree with this or not, but and and by the way, it's the same thing. Israel and the United States, I believe, are equal when it comes to this now in 2023. Um, there were at one time there was an effort <laughs> when when high profile people, um, uh, you know, from different sides of the aisle, so to speak, or different parts of the political parties, it, there was an effort uh, it, it, historically, at least in this country. Uh, to, to 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 sincerely try to unify everybody. Uh, I mean, I'm the one I'm thinking of. Uh, the obvious one I'm thinking of is you know Gerald Ford announcing his pardon of Richard Nixon. 
Uh, I, someone said to me last week that, that the best thing Biden could have done in the aftermath of what happened here with Trump was to announce that he would pardon him if, you know, down the line. Obviously, that's not going to happen now because of the, 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 the craziness between the parties at the moment. But I, I, I was wondering, like, is this, an, is this a normal uh, is this something normal that the former prime minister is testifying against the prime minister? It just happens to be that, you know, he has information he wants to, you know, testify and share with everybody or, or, or are they suffering from what we're suffering here in the U S that there is not going to be any type of public cooperation or any type of public sentiment that's going to show any type of unity between the parties. Cause that's just where we're at right now. By and large is yes, but the, the, there are a lot of parts to that question. But one thing uh, I find very disturbing that officials from Israel come here and bring the internal divisions to the United States and and give interviews and stuff where they which which was a, a policy in the past that uh, you can attack each other at home, but when you go abroad, we stand you stand behind the government and the and the state of Israel. Yep. That rule has been shattered. Uh, I think the the um, the trials are a separate track that we have to look at that. Uh, you see that as soon as the vote took place at the Knesset and a member of the opposition got elected to the judicial review panel, then they broke off all the talks. That would seem to me to be the point which you say, okay, now we'll do more talks when four members of Bibi's coalition joined the opposition. Now, it may well be with Bibi's permission. Some people speculate that this is the outcome Bibi wanted because he thinks that the demonstrations will be diminished and it also buys him some time. Um, and, you know, there's one from the opposition, one from the coalition that elected, and there'll be one more, but that's been put off for a while. So the you, you just have to take each part and try to assess. But clearly, the, a lot of the dignity that we saw, let's say, in Begin's time and right. other times, there are being... You know, the kind of things that uh, you had internal differences, you had differences between, even between Rabin and Perez and the name calling and stuff. But, but you put on a front at least. And when you're facing all the challenges, only some of which we, we've talked about, uh, we look at the UN and you see this commission of inquiry coming out with a report that is so vicious, so flawed, so anti Israel. It, it's and no surprise because the three people in charge of the commission of inquiry, which is unlimited in funding and in, in length, uh, are, are known, have made anti-Semitic comments in the past and uh, are uh, hostile uh, to, to Israel. Uh, so we, this is a time when you need a united front and whatever differences exist in Israel, and it's legitimate to have debates over some of these issues, but don't bring those fights here. Don't, don't try to enlist Americans uh, on one side or the other uh, on the internal issues though people have a right to express their views and their concerns in responsible ways. So, yes, I think that there is a change. I think that we're, we're um, you know, people are looking at Netanyahu as being vulnerable. You know, right now the polls show him, I think, even with uh, Benny Gantz, uh, which is a surprise to, to many people. Uh, again, you can't predict in Israeli politics whatever, what will be in the future. But I think it's a very, a very delicate, and, and uh, time, I think that the demonstrations can be turned into a positive if they they stop now and that they got people activated, interested, young people. Hopefully it can be directed towards positive engagement uh, with the state. 
uh, the fact that they didn't burn the flags but carry the flags and wave them means they're not disassociating from from the state but the uh, you know this kind of heightened atmosphere and more intense atmosphere leaders especially have to be very careful with what they say and what they unleash yeah plus the media just fuels the fire to a degree worse we've never seen the media is just some of it just beyond any belief but you can't believe it anyway that's true and we've never seen it to this degree but again you know the speed with which things happen and the the rhetoric that people get away with and you know in, in simple sentences on social media these days just make it almost impossible frankly but uh Hey, I don't want to be that old-fashioned guy who's complaining about the way things are here in 2023. Finally, in light of this week's events, how would you describe the Saudi Arabian-China relationship? A marriage of convenience. Uh, I don't believe that Saudi Arabia can be indifferent to knowing the appetite that China has, that it goes into countries, it invests, uh, as they seem to be in Naom, Um but we know that they extract a heavy price. Ultimately, most countries, they go in, they lend money, which they don't have to do in Saudi case, but build a dependency. They, they have an insatiable appetite for energy. They are looking to extend the Belt and Road, and Xi wants to be an international figure. And the fact that he brought Iran and Saudi Arabia together, regardless of how uh, serious that is. We did see the visit of a foreign minister to of Saudi Arabia to Iran. We've seen Iranian officials visiting Saudi Arabia. They opened the embassy of of Iran in Saudi Arabia. They they have taken uh, some uh, again superficial steps. Uh, it seems that the fighting with the Houthis is somewhat reduced, but Iran is still not stopping the aid going to them in, in Yemen. So the underlying tensions, I think, remain. Uh, and the the Chinese are stepping into vacuum after vacuum wherever they feel that they can extend their Belt and Road Initiative, which has not just economic but political ramifications, where they can um, they put their ships then in in various places. They they have a presence, and then people look for alternatives. And and uh, China uh, is taking advantage of the of what they see as the failings on the part of others. So the Chinese uh, deal is significant. Their growing presence and relationship, the fact that they hosted Abbas this week and promised that they would engage in um, or offering to to do negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, though I don't believe that much will come of that. But you see the, the aggressive appetite and the desire to be as the second greatest power in the world uh, a player everywhere. Wow, there is so much going on. It is unbelievable what's happening in this world. And what a small world it's become that all of us can follow everything that's happening on this planet at a moment's notice. It's just, it's sometimes too much to digest, frankly. There's just so much happening. In, or or I should say, there's always been so much happening, but now we're just aware of all of it. Um, a lot of indigestion. A lot, yeah, to say the least. Um, hey, happy Father's Day, Malcolm. Enjoy uh Enjoy your Shabbos and have a wonderful weekend. All the fathers, the mothers, the children who, who make them fathers. So we say have a happy day to everybody. Yeah, amen to that. Have, have a, a good Shabbos. Good yes, you as well. Wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again, please God, next week. Malcolm Holmline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents, Major American Jewish Organizations, Fridays with us in hour number two for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.